Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about another podcast that we love. It's called Stellar Firma, and it's a semi-improvised science fiction comedy podcast that follows the misadventures of Stellar Firma Limited's highest-born but lowest-achieving planetary designer Trexel Geistman and his bewildered clone assistant David Seven. Join Trexel and David Seven each week as they attempt to take listener submissions and craft them into planets. Poor David will be lucky to make it a week before being slurried and recycled into raw human resources. If you love Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or Red Dwarf, you'll love this award-winning and absurd comedy podcast. Search for Stellar Firma wherever you listen to podcasts or visit www.rustyquill.com for more information. A co-presentation of WNYC Studios and Night Vale Presents. You are listening to the Orbiting Human Circus of the Air. In the grand ballroom at the top of the Eiffel Tower, the red velvet curtains part, and suddenly the giant on-air sign above the stage lights up. Broadcasting from the top of the Eiffel Tower, the orbiting human circus of the air. We start tonight on a serious note. A member of our orbiting human circus family has gone missing. His name is Coco. He's the night watchman here at the Eiffel Tower. And in the fashionable cafes beside the Seine, they are listening. They've been missing for several days, and we're all quite worried. And in the farmhouses, they listen. He's 90 years old, about 5 foot 6, 115 pounds, and he's of African... But I can find him. And in the teenage bedrooms of our cities... Coco, if Form a search me, party. We miss you very much. <laughs> well, I'm not going to find him by just staying here. I think I can get out. I'm not grounded, really. Operators are standing by. And now, for all of you Dreamland listeners, a slumbrous interlude. Are you counting sheep? Well, why not real sheep? That's right, floating in from the back of the auditorium. Look up, everybody. There they are. Oh, I wish you in the audience could see how beautiful you look right now. From up here on the stage, there are sheep-shaped shadows crossing in front of your faces. And why not? This is your dream. And hundreds of levitating sheep float in above the audience's heads. The audience lean back in their seats. At home, people cuddled closer with their pets, stuffed animals, or And from the wings, the stagehands watch in awe.
And as the sheep suddenly go quiet, a silence reigns, and the theatre darkens, and the only lights remaining shine on the sheep as they quietly float by. But there is one stagehand who is not watching John Cameron's astonishing feat of levitation. We find Jacques backstage. He's absorbed in a book he found that someone must have dropped. Whoa! Holy! It is now the next morning, and we find Jacques at his kung fu class with his kung fu buddies. Everybody is kung fu fighting, but he does not join the class, which has gone on without him. He stands aside, still reading that book. He's a slow reader, and the janitor is shocked to see it's the night watchman's log. Yes, the janitor is there, and he looks down and is amazed to find himself in full kung fu regalia. He looks fabulous, and why not? It is his dream. He goes up and taps Jacques on the shoulder. Hey. Whoa, whoa, dude. Who reddens, embarrassed, having been caught reading Coco's book. He gestures for the janitor to follow him into the adjoining empty kung fu lounge filled with red velvet and mirrors, where it's quiet enough to talk. What are you doing here? I didn't know you liked kung fu. Oh, you know, I, I like kung fu as much as the next guy. Oh, man, we should spar sometime. You wouldn't stand a chance. <laughs> Oh, I bet you're wondering what I'm doing reading Coco's book. Mm -hmm. Look, Julian, I'm just smoking behind the ticket booth on my break, and I look down, and it's just laying there. I thought maybe it could tell us something. But for real, I'm afraid maybe Coco's getting a little funny in the head. Like he thinks the circus and ballroom and everything is something you made up. (laughs) Crazy. But, I mean, everything in here is about you. It's like he's discovered something, and he's got to save you. The janitor feels chilly in the lounge in his bare feet. He seems to need you to tell him something. The janitor stares at the strange kung fu-themed wind's daughter decorations they've hung in the kung fu lounge. Is there something you haven't shared? Later in the evening, in the beautifully decorated broadcast ballroom, we find Chief Stagehand Letitia Saltier and Crew Carpenter Lily with paintbrushes in their hands, touching up a 70-foot-tall clock face. They make one every year to be used as backdrop for the Wind's Daughter holiday show. You too, huh? Why is it that none of us can stop thinking and talking about this janitor? It's addictive, you know? He's like our entertainment. I enjoy it. Why, well, yeah. (laughs) Let's not stop her. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So what did happen? And the stagehands do not stop. Down among the empty seats we find Francois. Having learned what Coco wrote about the janitor in his book, he's conjecturing about it with Margot. I wonder what the big thing the janitor has to tell Coco is. Maybe it's something to do with how he came to the tower. Stagehand Jacques walks up. I bet it has something to do with John Cameron. Meanwhile, back on the stage, Letitia puts down her paintbrush, kneeling beside the giant clock. Those were the last ones, those two. Oh, we're all done. We're all done now. Oh, <laughs> bon, you go team, oh, huh? Yes. Lily, do you want to uh, stand this thing up and see what it looks like? 
Uh, oh, you want me to call some of the guys to help? No, 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 no. They deserve themselves. We can do it, right? Yeah, we can do yeah, it. Yeah, we can do it. Okay. Come on, it'll be fun. Yeah, here we, here we go. Okay. Okay, got you it. take that side. Okay, I got it. Lily, bend your legs now. One, two, three. Wow. It's beautiful. Wow. Oh, magnifique. C'est magnifique. <laughs> It's the best clock yet. Meanwhile, in the empty seats, stagehands Margot and Francois straightened thousands of perfectly gleaming telescopes, which, after weeks of preparation, are ready to be unveiled in the holiday show. The two pause in awe of the massive and beautifully illuminated clock face. Wow! Holy moly, that is... Wow. I'm speechless. Seriously. I'm totally speechless. I never see nothing like that. And continue telling of their first times looking through telescopes. I have to learn how to look in them, you know. Because, you know, you like you see it up close, right? Well, right, but it's just a big blur at first. Meanwhile, Lily has left Letitia to help stagehand Pierre who's come in dangerously tottering with a towering stack of telescopes in his arms. The two speculate about what the telescopes are for. Like Mr. Cameron would ever let us know. Or anybody, but they're for the holiday special, right? And as Lily makes her guesses, we find Letitia in John Cameron's dressing room doing the very same thing. And then we have the big one we get to find out what all these telescopes are about, huh? Mm. Letitia, I have such a... Funny feeling about those telescopes. What? They're going to change everything. And I don't know why that makes me sad. Sean, you're scaring me. I know you like to keep your big illusion a secret, but tell me. When you look into them, yeah. you see something from your past. The janitor stirs in his cot. Something's disturbed him in his sleep, and he rolls over. Next to him is an enormous pile of clothing. They hold a Wynn's Daughter clothing drive at the Eiffel Tower every year, and these the janitor has borrowed from the bin downstairs. The janitor has begun dressing up in them to look at himself, reflected in the saws hanging from his wall. He's dressing up as the audience he's always imagined, trying on, with their clothes, their personalities their lives. What special things will only they do and know? Dressing up as each, he thinks to himself, Can they see their own beauty? And, Are they brave? He fell asleep this way, and the clothes he sleeps in in his cot are not his own. He scratches his nose and mumbles something in his sleep. But does not wake up. He sees Jacques, surrounded by operators in the enormous circular perpetual broadcasting corporation switchboard room, at the center of which is a gigantic telephone which is ringing. And Jacques dances circles around this telephone, doing the rumba while inhaling helium and repeating 
over and over. Don't call me Bunny Rabbit. I'm dizzy. Don't call me Bunny Rabbit. I'm dizzy. Don't call me Bunny Rabbit. Don't call me. Now the janitor desperately wants Shock to answer this telephone Bunny Rabbit. because he's sure that the call is about Coco. I'm dizzy. But Jacques won't answer the telephone. He keeps on dancing. I'm busy. Money rabbit. And every time Jacques circles, he bumps it with his bottom, and the receiver almost falls off. And luckily, Jacques is growing bigger and bigger, and turning, in fact, into a bunny rabbit. And as he circles, he bumps it with his bottom, and the receiver falls off. And Jacques lies down with his ear up to it in a sultry pose. There is a voice coming from the other end. We wanted to tell you about Next Stop, a new audio sitcom from Multitude. The show explores the turbulent time of your mid to late 20s when everyone is changing around you and you worry you might not catch up. Next Stop follows three roommates through work, relationships, friendships, and more, and we watch them grow together as a unit no matter what life throws at them. For any of us who grew up watching classic sitcoms, you know there's nothing more comforting in times of stress and upheaval. And a really cool thing to us as makers of fiction podcasts ourselves is that along with releasing the show, Multitude has released a full budget and a free comprehensive resource on fiction podcast production. Search for Next Stop on your favorite podcast app to listen or find both the show and that budget and fiction podcasting guide at nextstopshow.com. Hi, I'm Drew, the narrator here on the Orbiting Human Circus. And I'm Alana. And we want to tell you about a book series we wrote together, Mightier Than the Sword. Mightier Than the Sword. Alana read that we're supposed to say the title at least eight times. Mightier Than the Sword. And we know, because you're listening to the Orbiting Human Circus, that you're really imaginative and creative and funny. And good looking. And that's why we decided to make you the main character of the book. Mightier Than the Sword. You are a real person in a fictional world. That makes you kind of a superhero. Because whatever you write or draw or scribble down becomes a real fictional thing there. Yes, you actually get to write in the book. Which makes it problematic for libraries, but a great gift book. But because you're real, the danger you face is real. Luckily, you can draw the line between life and death with your mighty pencil. Mightier than the sword. And it's funny. Of course it is. It's starring you. Mightier than the sword. For kids of all ages. Mightier than the sword. Okay, I think I did it. Published by Penguin Random House. Available wherever books are sold. Mightier than the sword, just in case. Julian Coco, he, he fell down the stairs. Oh, the tower? No, no, in the metro. There was a little snow on the step. When? Three nights ago. In the, in the hospital at Saint Louis. 
Is he, he going to be okay? He, uh, Julian, he was conscious a little in the beginning, but uh, he's very bad. Okay. Can I go see him? Can you leave the tower? Yeah, yes. Mr. Chenard puts his hand on the janitor's shoulder. They will let you in in the morning. The janitor's visitor has left. That Mr. Chenard said Coco had talked to him gives the janitor a little hope. But as he falls back into his cot and lies there awake for the next hour, he feels a deep shadow has been cast upon everything, blotting out all the light in the world. He has felt this feeling once before. When was it? He can't remember. It might not be a memory at all. It's probably one of my stupid stories. They're not stupid. Hmm. There is a sound from his stove. Julian, listen. He's up there again. I unlocked it. He closes his eyes and his body relaxes. He suddenly remembers something from his story about the ballroom at the top of the Eiffel Tower. It was part of the ending. Something had come to save the day. He was lying in a hospital bed and blocking out the light. Next to it was... The janitor opens his eyes, and there beside him in his closet is the great recitating platypus of the North. The janitor reaches out, imploring the platypus to come with him to Coco, but what he touches is not a platypus. It's a pile of clothes, the ones he pretended were yours. And for a moment, the janitor feels it fitting that even the clothes are not what he imagines them to be. He collapses back into his cot and luckily falls into a dream. He dreams he is in the back of a long black limousine on the way to the hospital with John Cameron. God, I'm such a child. Here, Julian, have some champagne. It'll make you feel better. I don't want any champagne. Well, it'll make me feel better. I want to make Coco feel better. Well, there's enough for everyone. We can bring it up. <laughs> you know what my plan was? No. I was going to bring him the great recitating platypus. And what would be wrong with that? It's not real. Not real? It's show business. Parents give their children something to dream. The children dream it, and it makes them better. It's a hit. It'll run forever. You know, the problem with you, Julian, is you're not nearly whimsical enough. You're cold. You're calculating. Look, I think it's wonderful. Let's bring the great recitating platypus to hell with the champagne. You're just trying to make me laugh. I am not trying to make you laugh. I'm trying to save you from yourself. To a materialist like you, facts and figures are all that's real. But do you know the phenomenon that your science has proven more than any other? What? The placebo effect. Yeah, and that's not to mention the constant inventiveness and ongoing creativity that the whole world is made of. And for that matter, the entire universe is predicated upon. It's the chauffeur. It's Francois. I mean, it's dreams. It's all dreams. They're all dreams. You know what I'm saying? He's turned around, taking his eyes completely off the road. It's all look out. Whoa. The janitor wakes up in his cot. He sits oh. up. His eyes are wide. Wider than I've ever seen them. 
He sees the sun flooding beneath his closet door. It's morning. He stands up. He goes to the door, opens it, and goes out. It is still early morning. Only the very first tourists to reach the top are there. The janitor sees a little girl who has managed to put money in a telescope, but has realized she's not tall enough to see into it. She does not see the little stool beside her. The janitor goes to show her, but the girl has gone off in search of her parents. The janitor touches the telescope and looks at the beautiful polish of its brass, and before he knows what he's doing, puts his eye up to it and looks through. The janitor's head swims and all goes black. And there on the lower observation deck of the Eiffel Tower lies a janitor who has fainted beneath a telescope pointed in the direction he cannot look. The janitor's eyes pop open. He hops up. Nothing matters anymore. He has to get to Coco. He rushes out of the tower and takes the bus Mr. Chenard told him to. He looks out anxiously at each stop, scared of missing his, and wonders if they'll still stop if he doesn't know when to press the button. At last, he sees his stop. The hospital is very big. In the hospital lobby, he marches right up to the elevator, takes it to the third floor like Mr. Chenard told him to, and walks up to Coco's room. He puts his hand on the knob and opens the door, but leaps back and does not go in. Coco's face is frozen in an expression of pain. He's suffering. Mr. Chenard had prepared him for this, but seeing it is something else. But... This is what he came to try. Because of what he's known, he thinks there might be something that only he could do for Coco. It might not work, but he's got to try. The janitor puts his hand on the knob of the door and feels a bite on his ah. wrist. Hey, janitor. What? That's not what Letitia would do. Or Jacques. No. It's what you would do. The janitor goes in. My God, Coco is clearly suffering. Quick, say something that doesn't make any sense. The janitor goes up and looks right into Coco's eyes. When my great-grandpa started out, nobody knew what a stage hypnotist was. The janitor leans in close. But Coco, he got a break in the circus when something happened that made him famous. The janitor feels Coco can hear him, but is unable to respond. Coco. It was like this. The janitor grows more confident. The circus promoter said, nobody will ever be entertained by talking. So he made him be a happy clown. If there was one thing the janitor knew, it was how to absorb Coco in a story so deeply that Coco once told Mr. Chenard it even makes him forget his aches and pains. And so the janitor throws himself into his story with all of the wisdom and skill he'd gained since he first hypnotized his bullies in the schoolyard as a little boy. He was a terrible happy clown. They named him Bobo. And in fact, the story he finds himself telling is the very first one he told in that schoolyard. And they made him get an animal. And so he got a cow. And he named it 
Latania. So I'll tell you what the act was. This is what made him famous. At the beginning of the circus, my great-grandpa comes out dressed as a happy clown, pulling the cow by a string, and he looks miserable. He's walking. So slowly. He walks right up to the center of the ring, and he's just standing there with the cow doing nothing at all. Nothing. Coco, he's just standing there like me right now. And the most incredible feeling passes through everyone as they wonder what's happening. And the janitor is sure something is beginning to happen. It's barely perceptible, but looking at Coco, the janitor sees the muscles in his face begin to relax. You have to wonder what's happening. He's just standing there. Next thing you know, the ringmaster walks out right up to the center of the ring and says, Ladies and gentlemen, Bobo and Latania, and they walk off. Nobody claps. See, you didn't clap either. Um, Is he imagining it? Or are the muscles in Coco's neck beginning to relax too? And he's leaned in so close, he speaks right into Coco's ear. Maybe you know about this, but the old... You know, Eastern European circuses, they used to have so many amazing acts. And they'd all go on, and it was wonderful. But then halfway through the circus, the ringmaster would come out, and he'd walk right up to the center of the ring, and he'd say, Ladies and gentlemen, Bobo and Latania. And my great-grandpa would come out. So slowly. Pulling the cow and looking miserable, and he walks right up to the center ring, and he just stands there. He stands there and does more nothing. And the cow just stands. <laughs> and everybody's just like, okay, this time he's going to do something. Nothing. Now, Coco, as performers, you know, we know what it is to be in front of a tough crowd, right? But the old Eastern European circuses, those were tough crowds. People are going to start to throw things any second. And you just don't want to see the clown and the cow pelted because you kind of like that clown and you really like that cow. But just before the first thing is thrown, the ringmaster comes out, walks right up to the center of the ring and goes, ladies and gentlemen, Bobo and Latania. And they turn around and walk off. But Coco, this time to a smattering of applause, as some people look down and are surprised to find that they're clapping. And the janitor sees that it's beginning to work. In front of his very eyes, Coco's shoulders relax. With the most wonderful feeling, the janitor tells him more. So all the old European circuses in those days used to end with this thing called the Grand March. All the acts, everything you loved, everything you enjoyed all night comes down into the ring and starts marching in a circle and it starts really slow. And it starts going faster and faster and round and round until the ringmaster marches right up to the center of the ring and announces what everyone's been waiting for. The act. The headliner. The climax of the entire evening. It's this is it. The ringmaster steps up and he says, ladies and gentlemen, Bobo and Latania. And people are stunned. There'd be this incredible silence. And nobody would move a muscle. It was impossible. And my great grandpa would walk out. So slowly. Pulling the cow 
right up to the center of the ring. And people were like, please, God, let him do something. But he just kept standing there. He did nothing. And with Coco's eyes upon him, the janitor rises up to his full height and gives a true performance that if his great-grandfather can see wherever he is, will make him proud. This is the headlining act. You know what's going to happen? The anticipation's going through the roof because there's going to be a riot. People are going to storm that ring and they're going to tear that clown and they're going to tear that cow from limb to limb, but you just don't want to see it happen because you really love that clown and you really love that cow and, and, and you don't want it to happen. But it's going to happen and you can feel the people rising up all around you and you, yourself, bravely, you rise up out of your seat to fight off the entire audience all by yourself and when you do, you find everybody else is too. You turn and see everyone doing exactly the same thing that you are, and you relax, and it feels good. Coco's whole body relaxes. There is peace and calm on his face. He's done it. Coco is hypnotized. But this is only the beginning. The janitor has a plan. Wow. My next act is the one you've been waiting for. Coco, you always wanted me to tell you the ending of the story about the ballroom at the Eiffel Tower. Well, I'm going to do my best to try and tell you. So, uh, you know, make yourself comfortable. That was a hypnotic suggestion. He's very clever. Did you see what he did there? Make yourself comfortable? That's how he does it. He just slips them in. So, the story. Where were we? Uh... In his story, the janitor had brought the great recitating platypus to save the day. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the great recitating platypus of the North. The platypus walks on the stage. It's walking right up to the microphone. It taps on it. Everything gets really silent. And this is when he recites... Boom. You know the ones he recites to make us better. He says... Oh, Julia, I'm sorry. It's Mr. Chenard. You were speaking to Coco. I don't mean to interrupt. Please, I will just uh, uh, sit over here. Okay, now go. Go, go, go. Please, continue. Okay. Mr. Cameron announced the platypus. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the great recitating platypus of the North. The platypus walks on the stage. He taps on the mic and everything gets really silent. The janitor looks over at Mr. Chenard, who smiles back sweetly. And then... last, the platypus speaks. The silly old man said, 
My hat is a cow, and I mean to milk it on this very spot. The bank teller said, Sir, this trying display is delaying the line and must stop right away. Now what is it you want? To deposit, withdraw, to transfer some funds, or make fools of us all? The silly old man said, My hat is a cow, and I mean to milk it on this very spot. Your hat's not a cow, the mean teller said. My hat is a cow, or I'll eat my own head. This, the old silly, so silly, silly old man said, in a voice still so silly, the teller smirk fled, his lips and left spreading a smile ear to ear, his lungs made to laughing, his tonsils to rear, like racehorses racing with a skunk run too near. Now the teller looked silly. The line silly too, the bank so silly still. I take my hat off to you, said a red staunch stockbroker. I take my hat off too, said a tall travel agent with a smart new hairdo. And our hats as well, our hats doff we too. For as hats in need of milking, they must all be milked, it's true. We've taken our hats off and we hand them to you. We drift off into evening and the fire in the flue our bald heads each naked cold wet and renewed having finished the janitor glances nervously at his audience that was uh, you know an, an approximation uh, no one's ever been awake to hear one of the platypus's poems and voice is probably pretty different than mine. I mean, it's a platypus. And in fact, the janitor delivered the poem with the most absurd facial expressions and extraordinary gesticulations imaginable. But it worked. Because as Mr. Chenard stares at the hospital bed, he sees a smile on the corner of Coco's lips. But the janitor is not done yet. You see, he'd learned from his great-grandfather that a hypnotized audience can be brought to see wonderful things, like fireflies, or even... Well, Coco, there's something else about the platypus. The very first night I tried to tell you the end of the story, and Mr. Chenard interrupted it and yelled at me. The janitor shoots a quick glance at Mr. Chenard, who looks very sorry. And you laughed, of course. I went to bed. I decided to go into a, a very deep sleep. That was a hypnotic suggestion, by the way. <clears throat> um, and so I did, and something happened to me, and I want to share it with you. I want you to imagine this. There you are. You're laying in bed. You were feeling bad, but you fell into a deep sleep, and it feels good. Maybe you had a silly dream about the platypus reciting you a poem. But you're going to wake up and see the great recitating platypus in your room. Right there in front of you. One, two, three. Wake up. Coco's eyes are suddenly alert, and he leans forward in his bed. Look. 
The janitor is pointing to a spot in the center of the room. Mr. Chenard doesn't see anything, but there's no question that Coco does. He's sitting up. His eyes are wide and his mouth is open in disbelief. Coco, if the platypus is still there when you wake up, it means you can make a wish. You can ask for anything you want, and I promise you it'll happen. And Coco makes a wish, but he does not address it to the platypus. He turns to the janitor, and looking at him, mouths the word, sing. The janitor flushes, and his eyes well up. He looks at Coco as if to say, Really? And then he turns to Mr. Chenard, who gets the hint and goes out into the hall, leaving the janitor and Coco alone. Coco reaches out and clasps the janitor's hand in both of his. Oh, here you are. And you're all you wished to be. You're alive and you're not alone. Not alone in this. So close your eyes, hear the whole world call your name. And you answer, please don't go, please. And the janitor can sing no more, and he buries his head in the bedding next to Coco. And Coco strokes the janitor's head to calm him. The janitor looks up and realizes all at once that Coco is waiting to hear something. There is an itch on the janitor's wrist. This is your chance. Tell him. Do it. Go. Now before it's too late. But the thing he needs to share is not how he came to be at the Eiffel Tower, nor is it about the orbiting human circus. It's something quite different. I love you. And those were the last words that Coco heard on Earth. Mr. Chenard and the janitor cried, standing beside him. And when the hospital staff came in, they found a smile on the face of the departed, something that none of them had ever seen in real life. And Mr. Chenard took the janitor into the hall, where the two have stood crying for a very long time. Mr. Chenard's stomach begins to growl. You hungry? Uh, I have not eaten anything. Uh, uh, have you eaten, Julien? I haven't eaten since yesterday morning. Mm. And not even the rats will eat the food in this hospital, eh? Huh? <laughs> uh, there's, there's a cafe I know that we could go to, if you want. Mm. And so the two climb on the back of Mr. Chenard's motorcycle. The janitor holds on tight. And the two travel across Paris towards the all-night cafe. 
Look! Stairs! Let's go down them! What do you mean, my other right? You have to tell me before the corner, Julia! Before! Before! Ah, yes! No, 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 no! I see it! This way! And arriving at the cafe, the janitor's hair is sticking straight up. Okay, Julia. We made it alive. <laughs> Sorry, I did not have a helmet for you. It's okay. Okay. After you, monsieur. The hostess does not notice them when they come in. They seat themselves. The janitor starts crying again for a moment, and this gets Mr. Chenard going until the two cry themselves out and like a summer cloudburst, it abates. <sighs> Julia, that first night, mm. Coco, he was still able to talk and, uh, well, we spoke. He wanted me to tell you something. He said that when you met, you told him a story and disappeared. Mm. He said this moved him because of a story his mother used to read him when he was little. Really? He wanted you to know this story. Mr. Chenard closes his eyes. How did it go? Ah. There are monsters. They are about to eat a little child. And suddenly a fairy, she comes, she snaps her finger. All the monsters disappear. The child, they ask the fairy, how did you make the monsters disappear? And the fairy, she say, the monsters are not real. And the child asks the fairy, are you real? And the fairy, she asks the child, is love here? But Coco's mother is really asking him, is love here? Because there's a tradition when reading this story that the parent is asking their child this question. Now, Coco, you know, of course, love is here right now in this moment. His mother is telling him a story. It's very nice. She is running her fingers through his hair. And so he answers yes for the child in the story to the fairy. Yes, love is here. And the fairy says, then I am real. And then she snaps her finger and she disappears. And then the child disappears. And then the book disappears right from the hands of Coco's mother. <laughs> this is what they do. It is like a magic trick. Uh, the parent always hides the book while they distract the child with the question. They pretend to hold it after. Anyway, Coco. He says he learned from this story that someday he will also disappear. And he knew that it would be okay if love is here. Excuse me. Uh, yes. Mr. Chenard opens his eyes to see a waitress standing beside him. You want a menu? Oh, uh, um, yes. Uh, one for me and one for my friend also. You're alone. Mr. Chenard turns and the janitor is not there. No, no, but, but he was here. You were talking to yourself. But, okay. The truth is, it is okay. He's only under the table hiding. And the janitor hides because he saw some people coming in. And now the waitress looks over and sees those very same people. And so does Mr. Chenard. And so could anyone, because they're there. 
This is not one of the janitor's stories. This is happening to him. <gasps> I haven't seen them in a long time. They're all regulars. And over by the cafe door. Oh, this old place, it never changes. That's so nice. Places like this don't change. Yeah. Oh, I so want a bowl of matzo ball soup right now. Ooh, oh, I want my... Wait, I want a French crepe. Oh, yeah. Okay, but first we gotta go because Jean Cameron is waiting for us. You oh, know how he on. is. Uh... No, 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 you know he's, how he is. He's with Cameron, uh, he's fine. Yeah, no, 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 no. Come on, we gotta go to work first. We come back later, we get a crepe, yeah. we get some soup, uh, yeah, yeah. we get some champagne. Let's go, okay. let's go. We gotta load in now, Francois. Come on, the box is not gonna move themselves, you know? And from under the table, the janitor watches them walk off in the direction that up till now he could not look. The direction that from a telescope on the Eiffel Tower he saw, as anyone would, a colorful worksite on grounds the janitor felt he had been before. The janitor stays hidden under the table from which the waitress now notices a foot protruding. And the janitor looks after the stagehands. He's not ready to face them yet. That time will come. But after everything that's happened, hearing their voices, there is one thing the janitor cannot help but do. He smiles. Oh God, I missed them so much. The Orbiting Human Circus in Naughty Till New Year's is a co-production of WNYC Studios and Night Vale Presents. Though this season has come to an end, The Orbiting Human Circus will return as soon as we can with live performances around the world. And production will begin soon on a new Orbiting Human Circus podcast, in which all of your favorite characters will return and all will be revealed. So join our mailing list at orbitinghumancircus.com or follow us on social media to stay up to date on everything to come. In the meantime, look out for the final songs from the season on Apple Music, Spotify, Bandcamp, and more coming this summer, and a special bonus episode coming very soon. The Orbiting Human Circus in Naughty Till New Year's is dedicated to Walter Lowry, Marjorie Hirsch, Joan Hirsch, Jeremy Ayers, and Charlotte Coster. It featured Drew Callender, Julian Coster, David Barlow, John Cameron Mitchell, Susanna Flood, Dan Solomon, Jesse Shelton, Mickey Braden, Nicholas Carter, Walter Lowry, Marjorie Hirsch, Harrison Beckwith, Jonah Mussolino, High Wolf, Andy Lauer, Magali Sharon and Alaska Sharon Cashion, Juno McLarnon and Kieran McLarnon, Steve Bellow, Charlotte Coster, 
and Tim Robbins. It was written and directed by Julian Coster and produced by Christy Gressman, with musical composition and arrangement by Thomas Hughes, music and songs by The Music Tapes featuring horns by Robbie Cucciaro, music by The Orbiting Quartet featuring Govan Gaman on bass, Benjamin Miller on piano, Colia Joni on drums, and Romika and North the Singing Saws, who were encouraged to sing by Julian, and piano performance by Benjamin Miller and Andy Lauer. Our lead editor was Grant Stewart, with editor Janelle Yee and assistant editors Emily Marinoff and Jeff Tobias with Julian. Our sound designer was Jonathan Siri Mose, with Foley by John Ringhofer and lathe cutting by Steve Espinola and engineering by Vincent Cascione. Additional production and mixing was provided by Will Stanton. Music from the show is being released by Merge Records. Become a friend of the Orbiting Human Circus on Patreon at patreon.com slash orbitinghumancircus. Check out shirts, pins, and more at topatico.com. That's T-O-P-A-T-O-C-O dot com. And follow us on Instagram at Orbiting Human Circus or Twitter at Orbiting Human. For our mailing list and to stay up to date on everything to come, go to orbitinghumancircus.com.